0: Thanks, Elisa. Hey, we're going to continue, obviously, in our season of Advent this morning, our series, Advent on Waiting and Resting on God. And um, this morning we're going to read about the birth narrative of John the Baptist. And you might ask, but, but not Jesus? Well, you may be surprised to know that the birth narrative of John the Baptist takes a very prominent place within the birth narrative of Jesus. For instance, there's 100 verses in the uh, the Luke narrative about uh, the whole birth of Jesus. 43 of them are about the birth of John the Baptist. So uh, he takes a pretty prominent place. And I want us to sort of talk about that today and what that means because God has a lot to say. uh, John the Baptist was born to point us to Jesus. And that's why it takes a prominent place. And I'm going to do something a little different today. Uh, I'm going to read through these passages and then just kind of give a brief little commentary along the way. So I'm not going to read everything all at once. Uh, And then when we get to this prophecy uh, that uh, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah says, um, we'll stop there and we'll dive in a little bit to see uh, what that's all about. So that's where we're going this morning let me pray for us Heavenly Father we thank you that um, you are here with us this morning that you've given us this word you've given us these um, uh, this tremendous uh, narrative uh, about the birth of your son and all that goes into it and all the people surrounding it and the heavenly hosts and angels and all these things it's it's a magnificent story and and we want to um, to to understand it in a way that glorifies you, and to be motivated uh, to believe in you, to trust in you, and to minister to one another and to our friends around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. ...of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we're introduced to this couple, uh, uh, Zechariah, who's a priest, and his, his dear wife Elizabeth who is actually related to Mary. Okay, and we might find that out a little bit later. uh, Or as you read through the story, you you would see that. Um, He, uh, and what we see here in verse 7 is that they had no child. She was barren. So that was kind of a problem uh, because it brought a lot of shame uh, to her uh, not being able to have a child. So then we pick up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving, while Zechariah was serving uh, as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah is chosen to go into the temple uh, to burn incense, and this is a place that's right outside uh, the big curtain that separated Uh, the holy of holy places, to the rest of the temple. And so he would burn incenses there and offer prayers. And while he's doing that, the people would be out in the courts praying as well. Verse, um, Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear... And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So it's 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 this crazy scene, right? Zechariah goes in; he's just doing his thing. Burning the incense, praying, and this angel shows up and scares the daylights out of him, right? I mean, it would any of us. I've never seen an angel, but I think if I saw one, I would probably be afraid. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been answered, Zechariah. And Elizabeth, her prayers as well for a child. Their prayers have been answered. Now, you know, the angel explains, this child's going to be special, He's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. And then it says, he will turn the people back to the Lord in the power of Elijah to make people ready for the Lord. So then we pick up in, in verse 18. And Zechariah says, said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, This, excuse me, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. So Zechariah questions the angel, right? Um, Which ends up being a mistake. Uh, The angel states very strongly who he is. My name is Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to bring you this good news. And Gabriel makes Zechariah unable to speak because of his unbelief. He wasn't sure about what was going on or what the angel was saying. Zechariah finally comes out of the temple and it's obvious that he's seen a vision or something has happened. Because it took him forever and he couldn't talk anymore. But then amazingly, the story tells us that Elizabeth conceives. Okay? So now we turn to um, Luke 1.57. To sixty-six. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Don't forget that. And, and the, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his fathers inquiring what he wanted to be called, him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the friends and neighbors, they come, they rejoice with Zechariah and Elizabeth at the birth of their son, They go to circumcise him. His name is John, according to what Gabriel had said. And now Zechariah is able to speak. And all the people in the hill country are amazed at all these things. Okay, now we get to our main passage. This is uh, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, "...whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, this is the last prophecy about Jesus before he's actually born. Okay, it's actually about Jesus. Jesus. You might think, well, isn't it Zechariah's? you know, he's prophesying and his son has been miraculously born. It's actually about Jesus. Only verses 76 and 77 are about John. And and it's kind of like, as as I read it and started to to think about it, it's kind of like Zechariah remembers all of his Old Testament studies about the Messiah as he read through the Old Testament scriptures. And that they all come flooding back to him with crystal clarity. And divine inspiration to prophesy these words right he's overwhelmed and what i want to do is take a closer look at the prophecy and i want to ask two main questions what does this prophecy tell us about the character of god and what does this prophecy tell us about our predicament and god's solution so first off what does this prophecy tell us about the character of god simply put and this is the this is the key point of the whole sermon It shows us the tender mercy of God. It shows us the tender mercy of God. We see that when, um, back uh, earlier, when talking to Elizabeth. And then we also see it in verse 72, that God wants to save us in order to show the mercy promised to our fathers. It's God's covenant that God made with his people. And he's going he's to continue to keep that covenant and show us mercy. And then 78 makes it very clear and says that God wants to deliver us from our enemies and from our darkness because of the tender mercy of God. Now, whatever your view of God may be, you know, uh, it, it, it must include... The, the tender mercy of God. But I, I think typically we think about, do we, we don't always think about God this way, right? We think about him more as the almighty God. Okay? Sovereign over all creation. Um, he created all things, heaven and earth. The universe is his domain. Nothing is more powerful than God. And nothing can happen outside of his will. So we tend to think about God and His strength and His power, but He is also at the same time tenderly merciful. And that's what this passage brings out about the character of God. So He is all those things, strong, powerful, sovereign, right? He is all those things, but He is also tenderly merciful. He is tender. Think about it this way, that God is not showing us mercy uh, with a disposition of spite or begrudgingly. Um, His mercy is not forced or coerced in any way. It's not with bitterness or harshness. Rather, it's tender, meaning it's compassionate. His mercy is empathetic. His mercy is affectionate. And I was, I was trying to think of a way to, 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 to illustrate this. And I, I thought about um, uh, when our kids were babies and they had a fever. Remember when, when your kid is a baby and they have a fever, you know, maybe 101 or something. And, and they're just limp, right? They're just limp. Like they're just, there's no smile on their face. There's, they're just limp. And, and you just feel so bad because they can't move and they can't do anything to help themselves. But like a mother or a father who tenderly cares for that precious baby in, in, their, in their pain and just in their, uh, un, in their you know, they're just not able to help themselves. This is how God is with us. This is his, his tenderness towards us, his tender heart towards us and how he cares about us. And then the mercy of God can be defined this way. It describes his focused disposition of compassionate forgiveness toward his people, especially in light of their distressed and dire circumstances. We need the mercy of God. We live in distress a lot of times. We have dire circumstances that overwhelm us at times. We need this tender mercy of God could also illustrate it with um, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. I'm sure we mentioned this at some point in our uh, study of the Ten Commandments, but, um, you know, we go through the Ten Commandments, and then um, Moses comes down, remember, he comes down from the the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets, you know, only to find what? That the Israelites had committed spiritual adultery, and they were worshiping a golden calf. Moses is so angry. He, is, he, he has a conniption, right? He takes the, the tablets, he th- throws them and smashes them to the ground. But in the midst of all this, this is what God says to Moses. He says, "The Lord, it's just, He's saying to him about himself, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious." Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. This is the tender mercy of God. You know, we started last week talking about waiting because it's the theme of our Advent season. And last week, Andrew made a profound statement that our waiting is not passive or inactive, but our waiting is active. And here in this passage, we see Zechariah, who has been waiting for the birth of his own son, which comes to pass, but he has also been waiting for the Messiah. Especially in light of what had been happening recently, right? When you read... The, the whole story in Luke 1 and 2, like there's so many things going on and Zechariah saw them all. He was a witness to them all. He heard about them all. Something big is happening. And while he waits, because Jesus has not been born yet, just his son, what does Zechariah do? He worships. This is what this is. This prophecy is, is worship. Zechariah dwells and meditates on the mercy of God. You see, Zechariah knows his Old Testament history. He knows the faithfulness of God to his people in keeping his covenant through the centuries. And he knows that God is tender and full of mercy. And once his tongue is loosed and he is able to speak, the first thing he does is cry out in prophetic worship. We need to dwell And meditate on the tender mercy of God. Each of us has experienced that tender mercy at some point in our lives. I hope you've at least had a glimpse of it. And it should move us to worship and have peace. And have hope that God will continue to show his tender mercy to us. So it shows us this character of God. But what does this prophecy tell us about our predicament? And God's solution Or, another way to put it is, why do we need the tender mercy of God? Why do we really need it? Well, if we go back to the passage, verses 68 and 69 tell us that God is redeeming his people and raising up a horn of salvation. And the implication, which I think we can all agree on, is that we need to be redeemed and saved from our sin and our rebellion against God. If you were paying any attention at all to the series we just finished on the Ten Commandments, you know that your heart, your motives, your thoughts, your tongue, your actions have been exposed by the law of God. And we, we all fall short of absolute obedience. We are an impure people trying to relate to a pure God. And this will never happen until we are made pure and washed clean and reconciled to God. So that's part of our predicament. That's why we need the mercy of God, the tender mercy of God. And then in verse 71, it tells us that we need to be saved from our enemies and all who hate us. And this prophecy in its historical context reveals that the Jews were a hated group of people. And, unfortunately, we've seen are still a hated group of people, um, as as we've seen things play out in Israel over just the past couple of months. But what about believers today? What about us today? Are we hated as Christians? Do we have enemies? I think the answer is yes, but maybe not in the sense of physical persecution. There is, of course, physical persecution of Christians throughout the world right? I'm not saying there's not any at all. But here in our particular town, right here in our particular circumstance, I would say it's more spiritual than physical in a lot of ways. There are spiritual forces that want to destroy us, and we need the saving power of Jesus to overcome those enemies. This is why we need Jesus, because Satan wants to destroy us, And then, again, in verse 79, it tells us that we need light to shine in our darkness as we sit in the shadow of death, and that we need peace. There's one thing we are not immune from here in Midlotopia is pain, suffering, sickness, death, car accidents, broken relationships, mental and emotional distress, anxiety, loneliness, depression, You get the point? We're not immune from that. Just in the past two weeks, Brad McGuire has lost his dad. We also had a family whose 26-week-old baby passed away. Not to mention the continued mourning and grieving of other loved ones that we've lost. It's hard. It's heavy. It gets dark. That's our predicament. That's why we need the tender mercy of God. But what is his solution? How does he reveal the, his tender mercy to us? God has an answer for all of this darkness. Verses 78 and 79 tell us this because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace God's tender mercy does this he he sends his son Jesus remember this prophecy is all about Jesus and I love this phrase um, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high I'm convinced it's a play on words right It's talking about the sun rising on the darkness. But Jesus sends his sun to rise on us in our darkness. He sends Jesus to bring us light and peace. And this prophecy in Luke 1 echoes one written over 700 years ago in Isaiah 9 where Isaiah prophesied about Jesus and says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them a light has shone and of course Jesus says the same thing about himself when he proclaims in John 8:12 and he says this I am the light of the world He makes it super clear. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is God's solution. This is how he expresses his tender mercy to us. You see, Jesus is the divine human expression of the mercy of God. All of this build up in the Old Testament. And if you examine the Old Testament in detail, you will find over and over again hundreds and hundreds of ways in which it points to Jesus. It's all building up to this special day, right? Right? We, we we put a lot of build-up into, into Christmas Day. There's a lot of build-up that we have. Getting ready, getting ready to celebrate, buying presents, decorating, all these things, partying, all the, this huge build-up. But the Old Testament is building up too. All of... The pomp and circumstance surrounding the birth of Jesus and people. I know some people say, "Well, you know, he was born in a stable. wasn't that big a deal?" Uh, I, I read it a little differently. There are more angels that show up in this birth narrative, the whole birth narrative, than any other place in the Bible. Literally, when the shepherd when the shepherds saw the angels, uh, it was a host of angels, thousands upon thousands. Proclaiming, singing out loud. It's all about a baby named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Named Emmanuel because he is God with us. Named Mighty God because he is the strength of our salvation. Named Prince of Peace because his love brings reconciliation. Named Wonderful Counselor because he is the one who sits with us to comfort us. Named Everlasting Father because he will take care of everything that we need. You see, that the tender mercy of God is here. Everyone in the Old Testament was waiting for Jesus to come, was waiting for the Messiah to be born. And they looked forward to it. We have the unbelievable privilege of living on the other side, where we look back. We, we already know Jesus has been born, right? We know that he lived a perfect life. We know that he suffered and died on the cross. We know that he rose from the grave. We know that he reigns from heaven right now. His mercy is tender. God is here with us. Pray to Jesus this prayer. I do believe. And if you're still struggling with that, then pray this prayer. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let the Spirit of Christ deliver His tender mercy to you right now. Right in this moment, as you sit in the shadow of death, as you sit in the brokenness of this world, bathe yourself in the warming light of Jesus Christ. His tender mercy, it's here for you now. Receive it, take it, believe it. Let's pray. God, we, we are awestruck, at least I am awestruck, by the, this whole story. By the Old Testament, whenever I read it and see how it points to Jesus, I'm, I'm awestruck by the things that, that, that were prophesied 700 years ago that take place around the birth narrative I'm awestruck by the fact that you are still tenderly merciful to me when I continue to be rebellious and sinful and do things that don't glorify you. I'm just awestruck by your love and grace and Just that you've come to to be with us, that you would want to be with us. It's it's something that seems unfathomable, but it's true. And Lord, Lord, I pray that we will just sit in that and believe it. And um, Lord, for those of us who who are struggling with it, I pray that you'll give us the encouragement to minister to others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.